Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show again. We're going to talk about the Kennedys. We had talked about it briefly towards the ending of our last episode, and I just was basically trying not to bite through my lip because I had so much to say about the Kennedys, and I wanted to get your interest in um, John F. Kennedy specifically because the anniversary is coming up here soon. Sure. Now, there's so much myth, mythology, and that surrounds JFK, largely because of his assassination, because things just didn't happen like that in the United States in modern America, post-World War II America. But when you look at his presidency, okay, he is, uh, if you look at the, his where he where he is in the in the greatest presidents sometimes you see him in the top 10 sometimes the second tier second 10 but without question no matter where you rank him as a president right he is a pivotal transformative kind of political leader right if ever there was a decade that was perfectly suited for a president like JFK, it was the 1960s. If you go back and look at his campaign, his campaign rhetoric, his appeal, his charisma, his persona, more than any president that I can recall, okay, he captured, which is very difficult to do, the American youth of that decade, right? Teenagers and going forward to people to roughly 30 years old, late, late teens, college students, 20s, up to, up to 30 years old. There has not been a president, maybe Obama. I'll take Obama and Kennedy. If you look at the two bookend presidents like that, JFK in, in 1960, President Obama, Barack Obama, 2008, you look at Obama's appeal, it was universal. Uh, more so than most people believed, but he really was the first president since Kennedy that I can re recollect as an historian and as a citizen that captured the bulk of young people's imagination, their fascination, their call, his call to arms, right? And that's precisely what Kennedy did. Now, am I saying Barack Obama took a page out of Kennedy's book? He might have. Historical book, you bet. Because you want to capture that 21, well, the 18 now, <laughs> 18 to 35, 40-year-old vo vote. Yeah, that's a crucial voting block. In Kennedy's time, he had to be 21. But so you still capture that 21 to say 30, maybe 35-year-old vote. And Kennedy was brilliantly tapped into the youth restlessness that first emerged in the late 50s, okay, with uh, rock and roll music, the appeal of rock and roll, folk music of the late 50s into the early 60s. In fact, folk music kind of reached its pinnacle of popularity during JFK's presidency. And But there had been this sense of restlessness, not only among American youth in particular, but also old liberals, right, the liberal establishment. They were okay with Eisenhower, right? He was Eisenhower was a moderate. He was no Trump or anybody extreme, no Nixon, no, no 
no, no one like that. But Eisenhower is also perfect for his times. What Americans wanted was peace, prosperity, and stability. Ike delivered that. Kennedy said, by the end of the 50s, Kennedy says, look, there's a restlessness out there. I can't, it's a kind of inchoate restlessness, but I sense it, I feel it, right? And he says, this is how I can win the presidency. If I can just capture the essence of that restlessness and define it and then translate what you need to do with that to Americans. And I'll tell you what I'm gonna, I want you to do with it. And he gives his immortal address, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And so it was a call to arms to make not only the United States a better place for all citizens, and I'll get to civil rights in a second, which he fell way short on, but the world as well. One of JFK's most popular initiatives, and it really reflected what I just said, was the Peace Corps. My God, in the first couple of days after he announced the Peace Corps, he had the State Department, the uh, Sergeant Shriver, who was in charge of the Peace Corps, his office was flooded. And I think that, that if you look at all of his initiatives, that program was extremely popular, right? And you, my older brother and million, thousands of others, I was too young, um, really believed what Kennedy was saying. They really believed him, right? And that he tapped, tapped that sense of unique Americanness, right? The, 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 the call to action. Americans love to be, we're an action-oriented people. And that was something you could do. Now, before we broke, um, was there a, a political foreign policy dimension to the Peace Corps? You better believe it. And I always tell my students that when you look at American foreign policy, especially in the 60s, the Cold War is going to reach a crescendo during Kennedy's administration with the Cuban Missile Crisis. But Kennedy was a Cold War. Kennedy started out a hardline Cold Warrior. So when you take that mentality of Kennedy's, in fact, Kennedy, there were moments Kennedy believed that the United States could win the Cold War by forcing the Soviets into an unprecedented arms race, which is extremely dangerous. Well, that's precisely what Reagan did, what, 20 years later, right? And Gorbachev, thank God, wisely said, we're done. We can't compete anymore. You, you want to win the Cold War, you win it. But Kennedy was a hardline Cold Warrior. Started out that way. Cuban Missile Crisis transformed him, changed him completely. But anyway, with the Peace Corps, by the late 50s into the 60s, the Cold War had geopolitically, dramatically shifted from the superpower uh, conflict over Europe to the emerging nations of the world. 50s and 60s are marked historically, globally, by wars of national liberation in all the European uh, colonialist area regions of the world, whether it was Africa in particular, Southeast Asia, French and France and Vietnam, and Latin America, the United States, right? And this really bothered Kennedy. 
And so he, but he realized with the Peace Corps, embodied in the Peace Corps, was look, we can we can defeat the Soviets in this in the emerging nations, third world, right? Not with an arms race, it's not worth it, but by sending to those countries the best and the brightest of American youth. Show those countries here, here are, you know, white, affluent college students coming to your country to help you modernize, to help you enter the 20th century, to remove those legacies of colonialism and European imperialism, whether it was a doctor, a school teacher, helping with agricultural improvement. I mean, Peace Corps was all inclusive. And and this is what you believed you were doing when you joined the Peace Corps. My, my brother's concept of it. And so Kennedy used the Peace Corps <laughs> as a means to, to, as a Cold War apparatus, another, cold, another arsenal in our Cold, another weapon in our Cold War arsenal. I mean, there's no disputing that. Kennedy pretty much admitted that, more or less, right? And so, and it was very successful. But the problem with the Peace Corps, Kennedy was the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps was Kennedy. And so his assassination dealt that program a fatal blow. Moreover, in fairness, as the Vietnam War heated up, all of a sudden you, you saw men, white males in particular, college graduates, to get out of the draft, would join the Peace Corps. But so interesting, Kennedy made it very clear with his Peace Corps initiative that this did not exempt you from the draft, right? And if you look at the uh, the the training of the Peace Corps volunteers, it was pretty intense, pretty intense. In fact, you sent them to places in the United States that you believe replicated the third world country they were going to go to, which is interesting, right? Uh, sent them to the South, for example, and other you know really backwards, that's kind of harsh, but less developed areas of the United States, you know, Appalachia and those places. But you, that's not going to be a replication of, you know, Zimbabwe or Uganda or someplace in Latin America. But it was pretty intense training. And the, and the screening process was incredible, incredible. I mean, you had to have a clean, clean record, no question marks in your past at all. So that was a very good program. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask um, a little bit more about civil rights, but I wanted to get your opinion on just from an an educator's perspective. Do you think that Kennedy gets talked about less because some of the areas that are either attributed to Johnson that Kennedy couldn't fulfill, or do you think it's because of the assassination becomes a conspiracy subject and a lot of academics seem to want to steer away from the whole Kennedy subject in general? You get a brief introduction, I think, of Kennedy in school and education systems, but it seems like a lot of people are disconnected from the subject because it does lead into that, the inevitable question, who did it? Right, of course. I think the assassination is, will always loom around the Kennedy aura without question. Right, that's just—it's an inextricable part of his historical moment. Right. Relative to civil rights, because you asked about LBJ, 
Kennedy's assassination, before Kennedy died, okay, he had a civil rights bill in Congress, in the House, okay? Two events were the catalyst. When you look at before May 1963, if you look at Kennedy's record on civil rights, it was dismal. He did not really want to touch it. And Bobby was right there with him. Now, Bobby will transform between 63 and 68 when he runs for president. But neither Kennedy brothers were keen on civil rights. Now, am I saying to you that they could care less about African-Americans, that they were closet racist? No, they weren't. But remember, the Kennedys are patrician blue bloods albeit Irish Catholics, but by the time Kennedy becomes president, even before, the Kennedy family was one of the most powerful family, political families, richest families in the United States. Now, granted, a lot of it was from, you know, booze, prohibition, and God knows how much other corruption the old man was involved in. In fact, the old man was a racist. The Kennedy's father was, Joe Kennedy was a horrible racist, closet fascist, God knows why FDR well, appointed an ambassador to Great Britain, UK, and well, get him out of the country primarily, he did that. But anyway, I didn't mean to digress. But when you look at Kennedy's record on civil rights, it's dismal, uh, abysmal, if not dismal. And King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and most civil rights leaders, particularly SNCC and younger African-Americans involved, in the civil rights, we were very disillusioned, angry at Kennedy, because you promised when you ran for president that this was going to be a priority. White activists were very disillusioned. Tom Hayden and the, and the early SDS, very disillusioned with Kennedy. Boom, comes Birmingham, spring, summer, 63. First real serious racial confrontation in the South. That's the blocking of the, the school doors, power. right? No, that's University of Alabama. Yeah. This is in the city of Birmingham. This is where the dogs come out and the fire hoses. Bull Connor. Overt racist. Use the N-word every other time, every other sentence. And But what was interesting about Birmingham was the first time you had younger African Americans in a city, southern city, saying, This turn the other cheek, this nonviolence is BS. And they fought back. They'll burn cars, they'll slash people, white folk, they'll do it all. This is the event that will be broadcast worldwide, where the police dogs will be snarling at that poor. African-American woman laying on the street corner. You've seen it. Where you'll beat young activists coming off the buses. Americans will watch this on television. The world will watch this on television and say, my God, that's enough. How can we proclaim ourselves the champions of the free world? The Soviets loved it, as you can well imagine. Oh, my God. The Soviet press whew, ran with Birmingham like there was no tomorrow. And Americans were horrified, particularly in the North, Northern whites. Now, got to be careful here. 
were northern white suburbanites horrified by this inhumanity, maybe a little, but their greatest fear was that, oh my God, if something isn't done to help Southern African-Americans improve their lives, they're going to move north. They're going to be coming knocking at our door in our suburb. 1960s America is still a very, was a very racist country in the North, and I mean the West as well, out in California, right? If you notice, California is one of the first states, which is kind of interesting, to pass, to considering, to be considering uh, with legislation, uh, reparations. I'm sure you've read about that. And we're talking in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which to me as a story is kind of bizarre because California wasn't a slave state at all. That's how California, California when it entered the union, voted resoundingly against slavery, but you had other types of horrible discrimination in California and ghettos, you know this, Watts, Oakland. So there's, it's justified. But anyway, Birmingham really moved Kennedy. Remember, Kennedy's a politician. He's a brilliant politician. People underestimate him. And he and why he was so hesitant with civil rights in the first place, because Kennedy won by the popular vote by 110,000 popular votes. Robbie, that's like one vote. He barely won. And he was always looking over his shoulder, man, at, at 64, the, the next election, 64. And he knew what a tinderbox civil rights was. And remember, the Democratic Party in the South is a very was a very powerful entity. He took some Southern states. He took Texas, largely thanks to LBJ and the Democratic machine here. But he took some other Southern states. He took North Carolina, I believe. Did he take, I think he took Florida. Didn't take the hard South. Took Virginia, um, Maryland. But um, electoral college work is where it counts. But when you look at his margin of popular vote victory, whew, it's the closest ever. And you can make the case, the only reason Kennedy beat Nixon in the popular vote is because Richard Daley, the most powerful, uh, what, old-time boss in American history, who out of Chicago, hardcore Irish Democrat, Catholic like the Kennedys, he'd be damned to the fires of perdition if he would see a fellow Irish Catholic lose the presidency. And so there, Nixon could have probably pushed this for, to an investigation. Would have revealed some corruption and fraud up in Chicago voting? Probably. Probably. Do you think it was Sam Giancana as well, too? Oh, I'm sure. The Irish and Italians aren't exactly bosom buddies, but sure. It's a theory that why uh, Sam Giancana, well, it's not even really a theory. He donated, I think, $25,000 um, to help raise the vote for Kennedy. But also Jimmy Hoffa did the same thing with Nixon. Um, and the Teamsters Union. So, the, I mean, there's many reasons why people suspect that um, Kennedy might have beaten Nixon. I like to think that, you know, it was kind of done um, mostly. He was more popular of a guy compared to what Nixon was saying. But when you watch those debates, there's I don't know, it's it's eerie watching Nixon debate Kennedy just because Kennedy's talking about more of the education and more domestic stuff than Nixon's talking about being hard on communism. And at, at that time period, you have to think that hard on communism is the way the public is already thinking. 
So, oh, yeah, without question. And so, Andy, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Kennedy-Nixon debates because if you listen to the debates, don't watch them, but just listen to the debates like on a radio or something initially, Nixon's pretty pretty good. In fact, many people say in pure debate terminology that Nixon probably won that debate, whatever the hell that may mean. Nixon was not stupid. No, he was a pretty smart guy, Nixon. I mean, academically, intellectually, every bit as good as Kennedy. But that first debate, Nixon, I don't know if you knew this or not, Nixon had been promised like an idiot that he would campaign in all 50 states. No one ever makes that kind of promise because there's not 50 states worth electoral vote. So two days or day before, I can't remember, a day before or two days before the debate, Nixon's up in Alaska. Kennedy's in the New York studio getting all prepped for the debate. As Nixon's going to the airport to get on the air the jet to come back to the studio in New York, he gets a car door slammed in his leg. So he's in excruciating pain, flies to the studio, doesn't want to wear any makeup. Kennedy's all, you know, beautiful. And he's the whole time he's debating Kenny that first debate, he is in agony, refused to take any pain pills, you know, dope him up. And he still did pretty well. Right. But the mistake Nixon made, like I said, no one, no presidential candidate in the right mind tells the American people, I'm going to visit every all 50 states. No. No. I mean, you could you could wave to them as you fly by in your jet plane, like in Idaho. But where do you want to be? Come October, September, Texas, California, Massachusetts, New York, Florida. Where do you where Chicago, Illinois, where there's electoral votes? Where do you win? Popular vote doesn't mean squat. You know that. It's we should get rid of electoral college, as far as I'm concerned. I understand it's an original intention, but. It needs to go. And when you have candidates like Hillary Clinton winning in 2016 by close to 3 million popular votes and still does not become president of the United States, there's something wrong, right? Anyway, so back to the civil rights. So Birmingham forced Kennedy to say, okay, it's time. And he gets on television and will make a fabulous speech, early June, 1963, right? And this is what civil rights leaders have been waiting for. A little bit too late, but they're willing to embrace Kennedy as initiative. In that initial initial civil rights speech and this initial civil rights bill, Kennedy uh, did not push for as many of on many of the issues that so, they were near and dear to civil rights leaders. There was no voting rights involved in that initial bill, right? Mostly focused on de desegregation of public accommodations, et cetera, right? Which was kind of a token in many ways because many states like Texas, for example, had already desegregated all their public facilities, right? Had abolished all the water fountains, separate water fountains, not everywhere, but in places like Austin, Houston, Houston, very much so. And so civil rights leaders wanted much more than Kennedy, but he told them, he gathered them 
um, after the March on Washington, which is the other turning point. Okay, King gives his credible speech. He will gather them in the White House and say, look, I know this bill is not exactly what you wanted, but we've got to do this in incrementally. I cannot get any other type of bill passed. And he was probably right, because still in control of many of the House committees relative to uh, legislation were hardcore Southern Democratic racist. And so Kennedy, would, he knew the politics of it, right? And of course, Kennedy was very fortunate that he had a vice president named Lyndon Baines Johnson. Because if any politician knew how to maneuver a bill through Congress, House and Senate, it was LBJ. He was brilliant. Brilliant. It's called nobody, the Johnson treatment. Yes. Nobody did it better than LBJ. And he said, look, this is what you introduce first. And even before Kennedy said, look, the LBJ told Kennedy, look, the key to voting to civil rights is you must get Northern white middle-class support. If you don't rally that support, any type of civil rights legislation is gonna die before it even gets out of a committee. And he was correct, LBJ. So Johnson said, you know, this is the key. Once you get them on board, you can move. And that's exactly what Birmingham did. The Birmingham riots did. It got Northern whites finally, finally, even working class whites. But remember what I said, those working class ethnic whites in you know, Cleveland or Detroit or anywhere, their biggest concern is not that uh, police dogs are tearing apart an African-American woman or fire hoses are blasting at African-American students so hard it rips their skin off. Now, their concern was, they the, their biggest nightmare was a massive African-American exodus outside the South to Northern suburbs. And this was true. King confronted that in 65 when he went North. He didn't, I mean, he, white hostility toward African-Americans in 65 and 68 before he was killed was incredible because they did, those old ethnics ethnic whites do not did not want integration in their neighborhoods their schools nothing i mean go, going forward to the early 70s with busing oh my god some of the we talked about this one time before some of the worst attacks on african-american children were in in boston massachusetts and those old irish and italians did not want African-Americans in their school school districts, which is insane, or didn't want their kids being bused to an African-American school. I mean, this is in the 70s, man. So, but anyway, Birmingham and then the March on Washington will finally force Kennedy. So he has a bill, he has a civil rights bill in, the, in, in Congress, in the House, and then he's killed. LBJ will take that bill, he'll yank it, Revise it, play upon Kennedy's assassination. He would always preface his speeches. What better way to pay tribute to our late, great, dead president than by passing his civil rights bill, 
which he does. You don't believe he actually cared about Kennedy, do you? No, I think he felt bad about the assassination. Um, But by the time of the assassination, Johnson, if you read his memoirs, he listened to his 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 uh, conversations over the his tape recording, which is fab or fabulous. He was very worried that he would never become president of the United States. He thought he took he believed he took that job that Kennedy would pass the torch to him. But within the first couple of years of of Kennedy administration, LBJ realized, whoa. He's going to pass the damn torch to his brother. Right? Or that was LBJ's thought process. Would LBJ have ever become president on his own without a Kennedy death? Don't know. It's hard to speculate. I don't think he was a part of the plot to kill Kennedy. I know a lot of a lot of people believe that. I just look at Johnson's mentality. He's more about self-preservation. If you listen to the phone call with J. Edgar Hoover after um, Kennedy was killed, he talks about how many shots were fired and Hoover said three. And Johnson's immediate question was, were any of them fired at me? You know, I want to make sure that he was more caring about himself and his safety rather than obviously dealing with the situation. And you see that later. I do think he was part of the cover up. Um, because oh, I do believe conspiracy. Oh, Earl Warren. Yeah, they all were. They they all knew that was was some sort of conspiracy of sorts. I mean, we can we'll speculate on that. I'll later. say they all voiced skepticism. Even Johnson said it was a Cuban effort that was involved in killing Kennedy. No, there was they, some Cubans may have been hired by the CIA to do it. Who knows? But no, Fidel Castro could care. Fidel's not stupid. He would do nothing like that. Um. Che, maybe, but Che's gone. Che's gone by 63. He's he's somewhere in Africa. They had had a huge falling out after the missile crisis. Che and uh, Fidel. So he disappears into Africa and elsewhere. Um, But Johnson will take that bill, revise it, and he'll pass it. The other thing Johnson does first, though, in March of 64, okay, Johnson will push through one of the greatest tax cuts to date in U.S. history, post-World War II. Why am I mentioning this? Because this is how you get white middle-class support. You make a tax break. Plus, it's good for the economy. But more the more money Americans have in their pockets, the more they're going to spend it. And so LBJ says, here, here's a tax break. Spend your money, stimulate the economy. And so that began to cement white middle class, what LBJ called the consensus to his agenda. Aaron Hills, his civil rights bill of 64 will sail right through Congress. I mean, it'll be a fight. Don't get me wrong. But not nearly the, the dog fight it would have been with JFK. LBJ will just ramrod that sucker. Do you, right think, do you think that Kennedy did good when it came to caring about the working class? He did a lot of things about um, kind of, I would say, switching out the power from the banking. Like he had big problems with the Federal Reserve, um, which I think that's another, if I'm not mistaken, commonality with Obama as well, too, having problems with that as well. But he really cared about the working class American from what I can tell. And like I said, when we talk about the history or education of it, there's going to be varying opinions 
about um, Kennedy in this. So um, obviously, if you have different thoughts, please share. But there's a lot of things that I'm going to have to get to that are controversial issues, such as the Vietnam War. That has now become a heated debate amongst not only researchers, but people that are focused into Kennedy because it was we don't know what would have happened if he was going to put more troops in. It, people say it looks like he was putting more troops in. I like to think that he experienced change and was doing a lot that would actually necessarily pull them out, but also everything we talk about policy-wise boils down to the inner workings of politics and who really runs things, in my opinion. And I think that is pretty evident with Kennedy's campaign, with the civil rights thing. I think he would have got to it, but I think it was also understanding how he's got to pass some other things first that aren't so huge hitting issues because the political system will toss him out immediately. Precisely. That's what, and that's what LBJ was a master at. And Kennedy was learning that thanks to LBJ because Kennedy was not a very good senator. He was a piss poor senator. He, he didn't show up. He didn't bother to show up half the time. His record, his attendance record in the Senate was pretty dismal, right? But anyway, but yeah, no, I think um, with Vietnam, if you want to segue into Vietnam, you bet. When Kennedy became president in 1960, elected president, took office in 61. There were, Eisenhower did a great job with Vietnam. He did not want that to become an American war. He saw what happened in Korea. I'm going to avoid the nightmare. So during Eisenhower's presidency, we pumped in billions of dollars into the um, regime in South Vietnam, into Diem's regime, right? Propped him up. Anything he wanted, money, hardware, we gave it to him, but no troops. Eisenhower realized that the United States could never win a land war in Asia, and he was right. Couldn't win it in Korea. Sure as hell he can win it in the jungles of Vietnam. He knew. So we only had, give or take, 500 U.S. military personnel advisors in Vietnam when Kennedy became president. By the time of Kennedy's assassination, November of 63, the United States has over 16,000 troops in Vietnam. So the escalation is not Johnson. It began with Kennedy. Now, what does this reflect? He's, he's a cold warrior. He believed that the only way to defeat, to stop the... Um, domino theory, which was BS, from happening was to make sure that that government in South Vietnam, Vietnam Diem, was corrupt as hell. Oh, Christ. This is the, it's during Diem's presidency is when we, the American public will see Buddhist monks light themselves on fire. You know what I'm talking about. Rage Against the Machine cover album. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, and this horrified the American public, horrified Kennedy. But the opposition to Diem in Saigon was unbelievable, right? And he was, remember, he was a Francophile. Diem refused to speak Vietnamese. He was, spoke only French. He was Catholic in a predominantly Buddhist country. And we propped this guy up, man. He was corrupt, vicious dictator, which is typical of U.S. American policy during the Cold War. Just pick a country. And um, Kennedy believed that we had to send the troops. 
And he denied and denied and denied that the American troops there, 16,000 of them, kept telling the American public, telling the press, they're still in advisory capacity. 16,000 troops? you got to be kidding me. And then he goes crazy at a press conference. I don't mean that literally. But he, and this is how gullible the American people are. Yeah, 63, you can, you can, 90% of the American people couldn't find Vietnam on a map. If you told them it was in Southeast Asia, they wouldn't know where they are. Can't even find Indonesia on a map. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> there you go. Um, and Kennedy tells them, oh, I've sent these these troops over there because we need to help the South Vietnamese people with flood control because the monsoons are coming. Well, if you know anything about that part of the world, if monsoons don't come to that part of the world, they will die of starvation because the monsoons flood the rivers and the rice paddies so they can eat their staple, grow their staple and eat it. But the American people, oh, yeah, goodwill, goodwill, right? But no, we're fighting. The first American death occurs during Kennedy's administration. I forget the guy's name. He was from Texas, a young kid from Texas. He's killed, right? And as what American troops are doing under Kennedy's presidency is they're going with Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, into combat to crush the Viet Cong. And the Viet Cong was always more prevalent and popular than any U.S. president during the war would ever admit. admit. You're talking over 300,000 plus VC operating in South Vietnam. That's a lot of folk. And we would always say, oh, no, no, no more than a couple hundred, you know, ten, tens of thousands. That's it. We got them on the run. We got them on the run. Well, Arvin was a joke. By the time you get to 64, 65, Arvin refuses to fight because they can't win. I mean, they're corrupt. And so who's doing the fighting? LBJ gets told by his wise men, Rostow, McNamara, the rest of them, oh yeah, Mr. President, just, and Westmoreland, there's the real culprit, commander-in-chief of American force in Vietnam, oh yeah, Mr. President, just need, you know, a couple hundred more, a couple, couple more thousand troops, you know, 10, 20,000 more, 30,000 more, and LBJ just keeps feeding this monster. Time you get to 67, you got 550,000 U.S. troops, and we're still getting the ass kicked. And so, but Kennedy, to stay with Kennedy, he escalates it. Now, the question with Kennedy is, would he have realized the futility of the U.S. effort in South Vietnam, that the VC cannot be destroyed, right? Particularly if Ho Chi Minh and North Vietnam continue to supply the VC with Soviet and Chinese weapons, right? We can't win. The real blow to Kennedy, I think the real eye-opener to Kennedy, which makes many people feel that he would have pulled us out, was the brutal assassination of Diem by the Vietnamese Arvin's generals in cahoots with the CIA. Kennedy made it very clear that he wanted Diem removed. He was told that He's the issue. You get rid of DM, Mr. President. Everything else will be fine. Kennedy believed the CIA, believed 
other intelligence sources. I said, okay, remove him. We'll set him up in a nice little chateau on the French Riviera, take care of him and his family for the rest of the life. I want nothing to happen to this guy. As you know, on the way to the airport, they take him out of the van. Him and his entire family are brutally assassinated by Arvin generals. The CIA watches the whole damn thing. Kennedy was livid. He was apoplectic with rage for a variety of reasons. And again, what's he do? His response was he purged the CIA. He purged them after the Bay of Pigs, purged them after the DM assassination. This is what leads many, myself, I think as well, to conclude that the cons main conspiracy was some kind of tie, the assassination conspiracy, to the CIA. I'm with you. I think many people believed that CIA was opposed to us pulling out. Dulles is still, is Dulles still the CIA director? Yeah, he is. No, he got rid of Dulles after the Bay of, no, he kept Dulles after, even after the Bay of Pigs. No, he fired Dulles after the Bay of Pigs. He, he did, okay, then you got a new director. I forgot who it was. Was it Helms? Richard Helms? Yeah, Richard Helms. Was it Richard Helms? Okay. I lose track of these guys. They change like revolving doors. And, um, so they opposed it. Um, within the Kennedy inner circle, uh, McNamara was upset by the DM assassination. Rostow was. But they said, you know what? We got to grin and bear this. This is what happened, Mr. President. We still cannot pull out. So was JF JFK contemplating a potential pullout? I think so. I think so. Would he have done it if reelected? Maybe, but remember what drives Kennedy is that reelection. It drives most presidents is to be reelected. That's why he was so cautious with civil rights. Vietnam still was pretty invisible to most Americans, right? You're not televising that war yet. LBJ will suffer the consequences of that. But uh, but but the, the media, the main, the, the press knew that a lot of what Kennedy was saying was BS. They knew. They knew. But they felt obligated at the time to support the president because he did have a good relationship with the press. Kennedy. He had a good relationship with TV was the impact there. The press, not so much. He made statements that the press reports on. He said, how can... The press agree with 80% of my policies, but then slander me in some of these articles, um, which, yeah. But I think it was his television impact that really, because he did a full hour thing where he was speaking to people and he had to think on his feet in those moments, say he didn't know something when he didn't know something. But nobody could really clip him or take him out of context. He can give the public the full view. No, he realized the value of, of media, the, the TV media. He, he was a master at that. He always give many uh, press conferences just thought like you said off the cuff and people love that now, obama did would do the same thing they love that kind of stuff americans love that kind of it's personalization and humanization exactly we love it we love it 
right? Biden tries to do it for Joe, but he always messes up. But he, he Joe Biden understands the, the importance of that TV persona, right? If, you, if you're a smart politician, you do. Anyway, so that's what we are with Kennedy's thus far. I would ask um, about Kennedy's view on Wall Street or just these economic powers, if you wanted to talk about that before we get into a little bit of the assassination, because you mentioned the military industrial complex. And I just would like to get your thoughts on some things when it comes to not saying who, but obviously, I mean, honestly, you could take your pick on who you want that killed Kennedy, the mob, uh, Harold Byrd, the owner of the Texas School Book Depository, Mac Wallace, Lyndon Johnson, military industrial complex, Hoover, uh, William Harvey. There's a, a whole myriad of people I got in. Oh, yeah. Pick one. Yeah. Now, Kennedy's relation with big business, Wall Street, big business, it was it was fraught sometimes. Right. But overall, remember who his father was. And so he did not really go after big business. He got pissed off in 62 when the, when he told corporations not, to, we needed to get inflation under control. So let's not be raising prices. And the steel industry defied Kennedy. Remember, remember Kennedy's 43 years old. So they see him as this young puppy that they could take advantage of. And steel companies, steel corporations raised their prices. Kennedy went ballistic. He felt betrayed, duped. So he turns around and says, okay, if you don't rescind those prices, that price increase, I'm going to start taxing the shit out of you. Because if you raise prices on steel, then the workers are going to want to increase in their wages. And if they don't get those increase in wages, they're going to go on strike. <laughs> Unions are still are very powerful in the early 60s. And see, Kennedy, that's all I need. I'm trying to solve this out of this recession. And here, this, these steel corporations, and they backed down. They backed down. They backed down. That's a good, a good show of, of, of force by Kennedy. But overall, his relationship with the private sector, with big business, Wall Street, was fine. It wasn't fraught. 24-7, like some presidents were, like FDR, or even... I'm not know. I'm not a Camelot um, person. I don't believe in the unification of Camelot. I'm sorry, I just don't agree with that. Um, you've mentioned a lot of things that I think a lot of the JFK researchers I talked to, they refuse to mention or they don't acknowledge or they're more patriots of Kennedy. I like Kennedy. I've learned a lot about Kennedy. I've grown to love the man. Um, but I just, there's no one that's a hero 100%. You know, there's are some hard decisions. There are some things. There are some mistakes that get made. But one of the things that leads to the assassination that everyone thinks is a culprit is the Bay of Pigs invasion. And I mean, for me, the Bay of Pigs moment is a great moment for Kennedy, even though it's a horrible disaster, because it's the first time we've actually seen somebody take responsibility for something, even though they weren't necessarily 100 percent involved. I think the CIA was a little bit more involved in that one than anything. But the promising of troops, obviously, that Kennedy made, but he made a statement saying, I'm in charge of these institutions as the executive and I take full responsibility for this. And we don't see that happen today. No. We don't see that Early. happen since Oh, Obama once once in a while would take full responsibility for something. Biden did for Afghanistan. I mean, yeah, but not as often as we would like. Right. I agree. I, I would agree. ask about what are your thoughts on the Bay of Pigs invasion in Kennedy? 
Well, Kennedy, that was a big mistake by Kennedy. It was not even his operation. It was in plan by Eisenhower and Nixon. In fact, it was a Nixon operation. Eisenhower said, look, Fidel's there. I don't care. I'm leaving office. I don't care. You, you want to deal with Fidel and the Castle Revolution, Cuban Revolution? Fine. Go ahead. So Nixon, as vice president, because he hoped to use this as a campaign issue, he, Nixon and, and the CIA covertly planned the overthrow of Fidel, right? Fidel comes to power in 59, January 1st. He's, that whole operation begins because you've got thousands of those Cuban refugees leaving Cuba, right? Coming to Florida, and you're going to, and so Nixon decides, gets together with the CIA, Alan Dulles, says, look, we can, Dulles tells Nixon, we can overthrow Castro. He's not popular. Well, guess what, Alan? Fidel was extremely popular first couple of years of his regime. Very popular with the Cuban people. Um, and so they planned this covert operation. It was supposed to have occurred. Fidel should have been overthrown before the 60 election began. And Nixon was going to use that to show how tough he was on communism. Well, guess what? Nixon doesn't win the election. CIA comes to JFK and says, hey, Mr. President, we're ready, we're ready to go. Operation whatever is ready to go. Kennedy says, what? What operation? And then they tell him, well, Mr. President, you don't know about this covert operation that's been in the works since Mongoose. 19... Huh? Mongoose. Mongoose. Yeah, that's it. And he, he said, no, I know nothing about it. Well, if you're president of the United States and you know nothing about something as, as monumental as this operation to overthrow the Castle regime, you don't sanction it. But Kennedy's thinking, Jesus, it's here. I'm three months into my presidency. Wow, this could be a great political victory for me if I can show the American people that three months into my administration, I'm going to drive communism that's been 90 miles, it's 90 miles from our shore out of the Western Hemisphere. It'd be a great moral victory for me. And that's what he was hoping would happen. That's why he sanctioned it, at least in my estimation. Politics. You mentioned it. Politics, politics, politics. Because remember, Kennedy is, is haunted by his slim margin of victory. And he doesn't absolve himself of that until after Cuba, missile, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But Bay of Pigs, was a disaster for Kennedy. Castro knew the whole operation. You're not going to train a bunch of, what, 1,500 or whatever Cuban freedom fighters in the Everglades of Miami, and Fidel's not going to, I mean, Everglades of Florida, and Fidel's not going to find out about it? What kind of, you to be kidding me. Fidel was literally waiting on the beach when they invaded. Hi, guys. Bienvenidos a Cuba. You know, stupid. Just insane. And of course, he's supposed to promise the air cover and all this. Kennedy wisely refrained from that. No U.S. troops refrained from that. Largely because he was told that these 1,500 or how many Cubans there were, Cuban freedom fighters there were, could over easily overthrow Fidel. Fidel was popular. Kennedy should have known that. And so it's a disaster. And he's going to blame the CIA. And rightly so. But Mr. President, if you didn't know much about this operation, if anything, you don't sanction it. Why? I just told you why.
got politically greedy. How's that sit down? <laughs> Can I? Um, Plausible? Yeah, I want to ask about, um, obviously, Alan Dulles. Uh, Operation Northwoods comes up. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, it got labeled a conspiracy in December because a bunch of new JFK documents got released. But it would just kind of let you know the mindset of these intelligence agencies that obviously Alan Dulles is a part of, um, J. Edgar Hoover is a part of, uh, which was about staging a false flag operation. Um and blame it on the Cubans to go invade over there. But we know they have 600 something or alleged 600 attempts. I can only tell you about maybe 12 or 14 that have been shown through documentation. So that number might be estimated pretty high. Um, I think that comes from Castro's personal aid, but they were using the mafia to try and assassinate Castro. And that lets you know that our agencies that have J. Edgar Hoover in particular denied the mafia's existence for the longest time. But they're working together and that to me is the biggest one of the biggest eye openers um to let us know more about at least what i would call the establishment of the military industrial complex of, of course because if you you know how much money the mob lost the mafia lost when fidel drove out took over those my god they owned havana they owned Havana, the mob, all those fam fabulous casinos there. I mean, they, you can watch the movie The Godfather, with Godfather 2, I think it was. You get a pretty good glimpse of that. And there was a millions. And so Fennel takes over those casinos and drives the mafia out. They're pissed. So they, yeah, they want to get back into Cuba. Cuba's 90 miles from Miami, man. <laughs> You're talking about, what, ferries or whatever you want to call those ships? Go back and forth several times a day. You could take a motorboat. If you had a big enough motorboat, you could take drive a Tavan and go to this casino for God's sake. So there was millions, millions lost. Yeah, so the mafia is always going to be keen. And I think Hoover and the CIA, some of these CIA directors, they knew this. And, well, they, and the mafia would always be willing to say, yeah, yeah, how much are you going to pay us? We'll get rid of Fidel for you. That doesn't surprise me in the least. I want to ask, so you don't think Lee Harvey Oswald was, do you, I mean, do you think he was part of it? Or do you think obviously this is something bigger? Can I ask why you think that way? If it boils down to maybe logistics of the single bullet theory, um, magic bullets, uh, anything that happens to do. I mean, it's very strange. Alan Dulles gets in charge of the Warren Commission that's supposed to investigate the president's death is how we all know it. But if you actually read on the National Archives, it says at the bottom, summary of the conclusions that Lee Harvey Oswald was the assassin, all evidence. So it's just you guys didn't look for conspiracy. It was eliminated within 48 hours, which I'm like, how do you do that without even thinking about a getaway driver? Yeah, no, no, no. Those guys all just walked off that grassy knoll. They didn't. I'm sure someone picked them up after they left the grassy knoll, whoever the assassins were. No, Oswald's a fall guy, a dupe. He just happens to be there, the poor bastard. Jesus Christ. No, you wouldn't you find some guy, you frame the shit out of the poor bastard like he did with Oswald. Time to the Soviets and his wife and all this nonsense and movie theater and all this bullshit. Jack Ruby's part of it. Why do you think Ruby killed Oswald? He's the mob, part of the mob, Ruby. No, it was a conspiracy. Who those men, who those guys were who killed Kennedy, it's, I can't tell you with any certainty. I have a very strong gut level instinct that it was CIA renegades, wet boys, 
hired by whom to do it inside the agency, inside the government? Some of the people used in the plot to kill Castro when it came to the whole S-Force or whatever they're called, it's Howard Hunt, David Atlee Phillips, William Harvey, um, people that a lot of people made statements about uh, ke killing Kennedy. Uh, Traficante did it. Um, Sam Giancana did it. Jimmy Hoffa did it. I think the HSCA was the only investigation that actually proved or said that there was probable or they had the likelihood and the means to do so. But for that time period, all the things that start coming out that are the official narrative, I mean, what for you, I mean, did you spark interest into looking into the assassination or just in the moment, a lot of people weren't believing what the Warren Commission was selling? I was 13 years old when the Warren Commission, 14 years old when the Warren Commission came out and I barely paid much attention to it. But as I got to college in the early, late 60s, early 70s, I got more and more interested. And then when I became an historian, got my PhD at Rice, I studied under Alan Mattiso, one of my professors uh, at Rice, and he was a big 60s Kennedy guy, much older than me. And uh, we talked about this and he said, you know, and then we chatted and chatted. So what's Wait, David Alan. Rice? No, I went to Rice University. Oh, I thought you said Rice was your professor. No, no, Alan Madison. Alan Madison. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. And we had a lot of conversations about this at Madison and I when I was writing my dissertation. And um, he was convinced it was a conspiracy. And he leaned toward, I don't want to misquote Alan, but he was very suspicious of the CIA, Dulles, would not say outright that they did it, but he leaned in that direction. Um, and that's when, I, that's when I first, this was like I said, the late 70s when I started to say, whoa, this is very interesting. And um, so I started to delve deeper into the Kennedy administration. And uh, as I looked at some of his policies, particularly Vietnam, got deeper into the Bay of Pigs. By, by, because by the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, much of that had been, a lot of it had been declassified as public information. <laughs> a lot of it still wasn't. It was, I mean, I'm, and I'm talking on microfilm still, too. It's, it's how I did my dissertation um, on microfilm. Um, and so it was there. And a lot of it was still redacted. You could access the archives, but a lot of it was still redacted. Um, but if you read between the lines, redactions, you kind of you see, whoa, this is not right. Lee Harvey Oswald's the fall guy. He's the setup, which I'm I'm convinced 100 that I would bet my next paycheck on. Do you think he was connected to the intelligence agencies at all? No, I think that poor guy just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, no, I mean, he, well, he was a part of the YouTube program that was going on in the military. And that's why he went to Atsugi and he went to, I mean, this 24 year old kid is traveling around the world, Helsinki, all these places. Um, I think he was CIA briefly. Um, but then when he came back, I believe it was when John Fain interviewed him. You got to think the trade, the loan department pays for this guy's trip back from Russia after this guy just tried to denounce his U.S. citizenship. And so it's having a scene in the embassy in Russia. 
they considered it a state issue. They considered it a government issue. It's gonna it's gonna look bad on us if he's doing this in their embassy. I 100% agree with that. I don't need any more conspiracy on that part. The issue is paying back the loan. You're talking about a kid with a baby who's coming to another country with no job, and he's paying two dollars, four dollars, and the next thing you know, after this interview he has with a with an FBI agent, he's paying the loan back four hundred something dollars with paychecks of a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Where I go, FBI informant, and if you look at John Fain's interview, they were worried about Marina. They were worried she was what they call a swallow, and I mean they had been watching him for years. And the week of the assassination, they dropped the threat on him, and all Secret Service should be alerted to any threats to national security and the president's safety. But the week before, they dropped it, before the Dallas yeah. trip. Yeah, but again, you could, that could all be a setup, too. And that's... that's Yeah, like I said, that's military-industrial complex. Yeah, that's a setup. I mean, I still... I just can't accept Oswald. I just... I, I mean, don't either. No. Not the assassin. Now, was did he volunteer to be the fall guy to set up for some larger issues? I don't know. Possible. But no, I do not see him as the lone gunman. No, there's no way. He got arrested no. in New Orleans for trying to start a fair play for Cuba committee chapter down there because there is one. There's none in New Orleans because of how hard right wing they are. And he gets into a fight immediately when he gets arrested. He asks to speak to an FBI agent like it just doesn't. That's not normal. That's not normal at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. No. 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 I. I still maintain my, as tenuous as it sounds, my. What? My conviction that it's renegade CIA hired by whom is the big question. Well, since I'm deep in the assassination stuff, do, do you have any questions in your minds or anything like that that you might have some unanswered things? No, I as much research as I, I have done and am willing to do, which is not a lot, but it took up enough of my time. Uh, I'm like I said, this that no, I, I'm just convinced there's he's not the lone gunman who generated the conspiracy, who wanted Kennedy killed. That still may be debatable, but it it was a it was a group of assassins. It wasn't just one crazed gunman. I put uh, Gerald Ford in there on the cover up for moving that back wound up six inches to the back of the throat from the back. <laughs> sure. Why, yeah. yeah, he did that for the FBI. He was also on the Warren Commission feeding information to the FBI, and that is that is actually well accepted and proven. It's just about. Um, there's a lot of issues that, I mean, do you ever think we actually had an investigation into the president's death based on the Warren commission, based on the subsequent panels, like the Clark panel, the Rockefeller panel, um, then the HSCA as well, too. I mean, you, you, all those investigations, what do they all confirm? Every single one of them that the lone gunman is who? Well, HSCA proved probable conspiracy because of the Jack Ruby. Right. But then who, but they, do they come out and tell us who the conspirators were? No, no we're never going to find that out. I mean, we might I mean, your lifetime, not mine. <laughs> you know? I don't even think in my lifetime, to be honest with you. I hope so. I hope so. Obviously the 60th anniversary is coming up. I mean, do you have any thoughts on the 60th? I mean, what the world should remember, what younger generations should look at when they examine Kennedy? Yeah, I think, 
that they should, and I, and I tell my students this, when you look at the Kennedy years, the thousand days, literally a thousand days of his presidency, he was one of the most inspirational presidents in my lifetime. I think you have two, like I said earlier in the broadcast, you got Obama on one hand and Kennedy. And I say, when you, when you, for me, for my generation, boomers, Kennedy was our Obama, right? For a thousand days. You got the benefit of President Obama's charisma, his charm, his vision, his idealism, his inspiration for eight years. We got it for a thousand days. When you look at his presidency, it was not a great success. Is he a great, one of our greatest presidents? No, far from it. But where his importance lies, I think as an historian, that he was able to inspire an entire generation, my generation, to want to do more and better for ourselves, for the nation, for the world. He gave us an idealism, a, a, a purpose other than making money, right? I mean, I, I look at myself, I've been a, an educator all my, all my adult life. I worked for the government for, the, for a while. After I got out of college, I hated that. And I became a high school teacher. And then now a college professor. I have a BA, MA, and PhD. I mean, that's it. But all those degrees, yeah, I've written books and articles, blah, blah, blah. But I'm an educator. And my job is to, as an historian, as an educator, is to show these individuals as real people, not some idealized whitewashed notion of them as American presidents of American history. It's, it's like, no, students I've always maintained since my high school teaching days, they want to know the truth. You want to know the truth. This is what makes you so good at your job. You dig and you dig and you dig because you're searching for what? You're searching for the truth. Not some whitewashed historical romantic horseshit that, we're, we, that we've been fed for God knows how long about the, about the United States history. And you're seeing a reversion back to that now with, with, the, with, the, with book, the book repression here in Texas. Oh, my God. We have to, the textbooks are screened by this very right-wing, hardcore Republican conservative legislature. We just had a massive purge of our Texas State Historical Association, many of whom I'm good friends with. They, they've all been, they've all left because you put politicians in charge of the Historical Association, a guy named Brian, hardcore right-winger, Republican. I mean, this is dangerous times as far as education is concerned. It's very uncertain times now will it stop me in the classroom no i will tell my kids the truth the good the bad and the ugly and we have i as an educator as an historian have a moral responsibility to do that on our show i don't you and i chat i don't mince words i don't get any whitewashed versions of history and so when you look at kennedy Back to your original question, when you look at JFK, he he was a 
The promise was there, but we'll never know if that promise would have been fulfilled because he's gone after a thousand days, brutally murdered, his head blown off in my state, up the road. Shot from the front or shot from the back? No, he shot from the front. Damn right. No, that's clear as day. The back of his head's completely blown off. Jesus. To me, that's, if you see the photographs, I mean, which I'm sure you've had, Jesus, that was a vicious assassination. I mean, if you look at uh, Lincoln, who's also shot in the back of the head, poor Abraham Lincoln, he, he languishes in horrible agony for three days before he dies, right? I think, uh, was who's next? Garfield? Garfield's does he survive very long? Couple, maybe a couple days, and he dies. McKinley almost instantly because McKinley was already old, and then poor Kennedy and Reagan survives. And Reagan was shot pretty much point on too. But that son of a gun, <laughs> he survived. That old cowboy, Western cowboy hero. I mean, I'm no fan of Ronald Reagan, but you certainly don't want your president murdered in public display. My God, and, and think with the thing with Kennedy assassination, which is kind of part of his mystique and idealism, I think, is that we were so captivated by him that his brutal murder just numbed us because of, of the cam that Camelot illusion that he created, but also because we can't come to believe how naive and innocent can we be. That vicious murders like that just don't happen to our political leaders. Those are other countries, you know, Latin America and, you know, some other third world country. They murder their, they want change, they murder their political leaders. Well, yeah, they might, like poor Salvador Allende in Chile. Um, but it was a shock. I mean, I remember personally where I was. I was in I was in school, days killed, right? Just before Thanksgiving break. And I went to Catholic school, right? All my brothers and I went to Catholic school. And Kennedy being Catholic, of course, there's a in our, our classroom, there's a photograph, a photograph of JFK and the crucifix and everything, right? And when he's killed and insisted, and I remember Sister Peters comes in and tells us, and she's just sobbing, right? We were all like, what? Yeah, here I am, what, 13 years old, eighth grade, 13 years old. And we we're just like, no. And I remember staring at the black blackboard, not, you know, black, literally a blackboard, saying, nah. And I and the first thought that hit my head, oh, it's a movie. They're making a movie. I couldn't accept the reality of it. I was convinced for a couple hours that they, they were, oh, these are a bunch of actors. They're making a movie about whatever, presidential assassination. That's the thoughts of a 13-year-old Catholic school kid, right? And then my older brother, he was uh, he was already in high school. And, and I had a couple cousins. I had three cousins in school with me. A couple, one was younger, and they were all younger. And they were just sobbing and sobbing. And then that finally dawned on me when I got home, because my mother was undone. My father was still at work and she was just sobbing tears because in, in her bedroom, my parents' bedroom, 
was the crucifix, a picture of Jesus, and a picture of John Kennedy, all in the same row. Now, you think about the symbolism of that. Not Jesus above them, but Kennedy, crucifix, Jesus. And we're Catholic, and the rosary beads around all of them. That's how Catholic we were. And so Catholics, as you know, I don't know if you're Catholic or not, but we're devastated by Kennedy's assassination worldwide. His victim as a Catholic was monumental in American history. I'm sure you know this. The anti-Catholic sentiment in this country, I remember growing up in the 50s and early 60s, was unbelievable, unbelievable in this country. And when I and I look and when I look back as a historian, as a Catholic, as a citizen, it seems like, how can that be? We're guaranteed freedom of religion in this country. And yet you're going to deny a man the presidency because he's a Catholic? Think about it, Bobby. We've had only had two Catholic presidents in our entire history. Joe Biden's only the second Catholic president. Al Smith, you've heard of him before, Al Smith, New York, New York guy. He was the first guy, he was governor of New York for a while. He was the first Catholic to run for president in 1928 against Herbert Hoover, Irish Catholic. He got crushed in the election because he was Catholic. And he was a wet too. He was he opposed prohibition, but he's Irish. Of course he's gonna oppose prohibition. So we're Italians. We we invented the prohibition to make money, right? The mafia, the mob. But yeah, it was devastating. Kennedy's death was devastating. And you, I think this country will reel, reeled, reeled from Kennedy's assassination for several months. And Johnson knew this. That's why Johnson doesn't come out until just before Christmas and starts to, to talk about it with the American public. And LBJ, he'll use it. He'll use it to his political advantage. He'll play upon the American sense of grief and guilt. Smart politician does. And that's why he was so successful in 64 in pushing through Congress so much legislation. Kennedy's agenda, the new frontier. When you look at what he promised he would do within the context of the new frontier, um, his most successful promise that was fulfilled was to put a man on the moon. Right? He promised us a man on the moon. By the end of the decade, he told us that the United States of America would put a man on the moon. And by God, we did. July of 1969. Right? Well, again, Kennedy's whole space program was driven by a Cold War mentality. Well, I remember when I was a kid, when Sputnik, you've heard of Sputnik? Yeah. Excuse me. You've heard of Sputnik? Okay. <laughs> Jesus. 57, right? So I'm not like that seven. young, damn. No, I know. <laughs> so I was like seven years old. And when the Soviets announced they had launched Sputnik, Americans went crazy. Oh, my God. They're ahead of us in the race for space. 
I didn't, there was no race for space, but we thought there was. And next thing we saw was the Russians landing on the moon. And, and this is legitimate hysteria, not just me. This is what Americans believe in the 50s. The, the Russians are going to be the first to land on the moon, put a man on the moon. And when they get there, they're going to build missile bases for the moon and launch their missiles at the United States and take over the world. We can't stop them. So we got to get to the moon first. Well, Eisenhower, right? Passed all kinds of legislation, poured billions in higher education to improve our math and engineering skills. It was a great boon. Sputnik was the greatest boon to public, American public university education ever. And Kennedy ran with that. Kennedy ran with that. And Soviets, again, part of the Cold War, they, Soviets never, I don't know if any Soviet leader in my time ever thought they wanted ever to, to go to the moon because they knew the cost, the cost. That space program that Kennedy, well, Eisenhower started it, but Kennedy really accelerated it. Cost trillions in retrospect. And many of us sit there, and some of the times I sit there and wonder as a historian, my God, what that trillions of dollars to put a man on the moon, and we haven't gone back since, was it worth it? How many more mouths could we have fed? How many more schools could we have built? How much more money could we put into education? The list goes on. But we got carried away with that was part of Kennedy's Camelot image. A man on the moon. I mean, in fairness to Camelot, Kennedy did a great job of selling the aura. Actually, Jackie Kennedy did a great job of selling to the public the aura and the mystique of the American presidency. If you go back, I mean, I'm sure you can find this on YouTube. Go back and watch the one-hour tour of the renovated, remodeled White House that Jackie Kennedy personally undertook. And then she brought us into that home with her. And she was unbelievably charming, gracious, beautiful woman. Took us on a tour of the White House. Watch that. It was captivating. Part of the Camelot. The Kennedys would have concerts in the White House. They'd bring in all kinds of famous musicians and artists and actors and actresses. Oh, my God. It was Camelot. It really was in that sense. Right? The mystique, the aura. Nobody has done it. The Obamas would be the closest. And even Michelle Obama has wonderful and charming and gracious, beautiful first lady that she was. Jackie Kennedy did it better. She sold it. She sold the whole idea of Camelot with her beautiful husband, two gorgeous children. I mean, what more could you ask for during that part of the Kennedy mystique? Well, John, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I got to wrap it here. But is there a place where people can find any of your links? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go to like Amazon and places like that, all my books are there. Um, you go on Google, you punch in my name and 
and find all the stuff that I've done. It's, you know, I don't, I don't really sell myself very much. I'm, I'm a college professor. <laughs> well, I'll link all the links in the description. It's been a pleasure having you back on the show, John. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.